Welcome to Nightlight, a horror movie podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Prince, also known as Head Knight. Alongside me, we got Freddy. Always keeping it spoopy. Wait, forever. Also known as Nighty Knight. David ain't here. No, he ain't. Because he had to work. (laughs) (laughs) But it's okay. It's okay. Go ahead and make your money there, Nightly. We're still a group of knights with an absolute love for film and a passion for horror. This is a podcast that takes a different horror film to break down, discuss the ultimate question. Why horror? So hit the lights, sit back, and let the darkness envelope you. You can support the show over on patreon.com slash goodnightlife. That's night with they Okay. By pledge on Patreon, you have access to the show ad-free and as early as Monday with a post-show. If you don't have any bucks to toss, don't worry. A new episode is released every Friday on most podcast services around the world. Now, Almost to the end. This is part one. We're doing another two-parter, everybody. I know a lot of people saved the first two-parter to binge them both in one sitting, which was great. That was awesome. Smart. The only way I knew was because I saw those numbers, (laughs) y'all. And they had an influx when number two came out. I was like, holy shit. It was a lot of y'all listening to this as a kind of a one consecutive episode. So thank you so much for doing that. Super duper awesome. Just to even let you know as well, this whole part one and part two are completely up for patrons. So right now, if you wanted to become a patron, you will have part two literally right after this. So by all means, if that's something you want to do on the Weeping Prince tier, feel free to do so. Speaking of things that are happening in the Patreon world, if you are a patron after this month, so if, I want to say maybe if you got a, you got a week or two after, after this month, so two weeks into November, you will technically be in line enough to get the gift that we are gifting our patrons. So if that is something that you would like to receive for your commemoration of being a fan of Nightlight Horror Movie Podcast, just something we want to show back and give back to our fans and things like that, by all means, please do so if that is something that interests you. Without further ado, to kind of conclude things for our Stephen King month, this was a fucking ride, my dudes. I love this month. It was great. It was great. I had so much fun. This was a blast. But to conclude this month, to kind of steer things off a little bit, y'all already knew we were going to do it eventually. But this is our most requested episode ever. And I'm absolutely flabbergasted on how long this movie actually took me to even write because I've seen this so many times. But it took me a long time. took me five days five days not surprised i went deep i went deep and i I probably shouldn't have but the movie that we're talking about today is dr sleep and this is part one first and foremost thoughts Oof. i mean like you said this is a long time coming uh especially for this movie we've talked about this movie so much even like outside of the podcast and yeah we show our love obviously on twitter if you guys follow us you know that we're big stands of mike flanagan and all the work that he does and this is one of his like best works that he's ever done uh this is my first time watch this week um <laughs> i've probably seen this movie maybe about like fuck i don't know 15 times 
times? I started tallying it once I hit past five. Yeah, so I don't keep track, but I'm pretty sure I've seen maybe even the director's cut that we're covering right now. Yeah. Probably. Oh, yeah. I should have prefaced that. My apologies. Yes. The Dr. Sleep director's cut is the one we're specifically talking about tonight, everyone. So out of the 15 times, it's probably like the 10th time watching the director's cut, I would say. Because I've definitely seen the director's cut a lot more than the regular cut. Which makes sense. I mean, yeah, 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 director's cuts out. This is one of those movies where it's like if my friend hasn't seen it. I want to watch it with you just to yeah. see that you love it as much as I do. Absolutely. So I'm like not even watching the movie. I'm watching the movie, but I'm like watching their reaction <laughs> as well. It's like, you love this movie like me, right? <laughs> right. Are we and friends? Sometimes <laughs> they don't want to see a three hour cut. So I ended up seeing like the two and a half hour version. Oh, uh, I see. Yeah. I don't even tell them. You just put it. Oh yeah. I just put it on. It's like, yo, this, there's this super cool movie. And I didn't, I'd never tell them how long it is. Cause that three hours flies by. It's true. And that's what I want to talk about. I love this movie. Yeah. This movie is definitely like probably my top 10 horror movies or just movies in general of all time. And that says a lot because this is a movie that really like resonates with me because it has everything I wanted to have. It has the solid story, great acting, great cinematography, great score. Um, shout out to the editing. Newton brothers. Yeah, the Newton brothers. Yep, shout yeah. out. Huge shout out for them. They're, they're doing them. amazing work. Oh, yeah. I feel like they're overshadowed by like... Mike Flanagan and all the actors are involved and stuff like that, but they drive what the emotion's supposed to be in the, the oh actual scenes itself. So shout out to them for sure. The additive of the heartbeat alone was fucking skillfully crafted. Yeah. Like, oh my god. Uh, this yeah, this movie's iconic. I feel, and maybe some people will hate me for saying it. I feel like it is better than The Shining itself, as like so. What, what, the what makes you what makes you say that? What makes you say this is better than The Shining? Because because I in ways. I agree with you, but I, I, I think I might agree with you in a different way. Um, at least for me, it hits a more good pacing, I would say. Okay. But also has a more interesting story for myself to be a little bit more entertained. Yeah. Where The Shine is a little bit more slow, a little bit less exciting, but also something you really want to appreciate because it feels like a piece of art as well. Yeah, it's gorgeous. And I feel the same thing about Doctor Sleep, but also has that more entertaining screenplay that we see played out yeah uh we see some crazy great characters i think the characterization in this movie is a lot better than the shining to be honest um i feel like the direction was done better to be honest as well oh wow um wow that's a bold statement (laughs) mike flanagan had some big shoes to fill oh yeah, yeah absolutely but he got the tone and feel of The Shining from the very beginning of the movie when we get past the intro scene and stuff like that. Wow. And I was like, cool, you are doing the same stuff. Um, wow. I'm, see, I forgot the other director's name. Oh, Stanley Kubrick. Stanley Kubrick, of course. <laughs> the iconic Stanley Kubrick. Um, but he's able to match his masterful like craft, I guess. Yeah. But then he has his own spin to it, and you see his own signature comes through the camera lens. And direct such an incredible movie where yeah rewatchability i could watch dr sleep several times like i said it's my first time this week i could watch it again next week i could watch it right now <laughs> yeah, i could watch it tonight or yeah. tomorrow because i like it that much yeah can i say the same thing about the shining absolutely not it's like cool i'll see the shining from six months from now and i'll still appreciate it right but i'm not gonna go rewatch it because i want to yeah you know um i agree with you i i agree with you i i I personally, I love The Shining. Great movie. Just just as I announced last week, I love The Shining. I think The Shining is absolutely very incredibly crafted. And 
the thing between The Shining versus this is the fact that they're just two different movies. Like they, they, you can 100% consider them a sequel of The Shining, but at the same time, it doesn't have to be. Like you don't need to watch The Shining to understand what's happening in this story. You don't like yes. need to know the classification of The Shining. Like honestly, in the theatrical cut in general, Flanagan hits all the beats that uh, pop culture has covered anyway right. for The Shining. So we get it's the there. Like, and everything like that. Right. It's so a standalone like, movie. It can stand on its own two feet, which I really appreciate. Absolutely. So that's the, that's what makes it super interesting. So, you know, it, it the way that this movie is crafted and presented, it, it's very much presented as a vampiric story. Like the, this, this is a story of vampires. And that's, that is why I find this one so much more fascinating because it's people. It's not a place. And because places, I'll be honest with everyone, places don't scare me. Like that, that I don't find places to be sinister and scary. Like it's just, it doesn't, it just doesn't bother me. Um, when it's a haunted house and things like that, like I, you have to be, you have to really make that house come to life yeah. in order for me to, to feel that. Um, and once again, Flanagan does that in The Haunting of Hill House. But, like, you have to bring that for me. And I feel like if someone were to say, like, yo, what do you want to watch, Doctor Sleep or The Shining? I'm going to choose Doctor Sleep. Like, every time. Every single time. And I probably watch The Shining once every five or six years. So I don't, I don't miss The Shining. Like, I don't. After watching The Shining, I'm satisfied with The Shining. I don't want to see it again for a while. Like, I just, that's just how I am. Um, but I think Flanagan definitely knew what he was doing. He knew what he was creating with this movie. And I think he did it very, very well. So, agreed. Let's jump into this. <laughs> Dr. Sleep, the director's cut, directed by Mike Flanagan, released November 8th, 2019, with a runtime of three whopping hours. That just cruise by. It does not feel like three hours. It does not. It does so not. Good. Even though this took me a consecutive of five days to cover this, it still felt like it was short. <laughs> <laughs> it was an enjoyable five days, at least, I hope. Oh, 100%. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I was going like, woo. Um, I was seeing things that after, for preface, I've seen Dr. Sleep, the, the director's cut alone, 36 times. This is my 36th time watching wow. it. Um, and I've seen it a total of 40 times. I've seen the theatrical cut six times in theaters only. I've never seen it outside of theaters. Um, once was that press event that I went to. Mm -hmm. And then the second time was with you, like immediately afterwards. I was just like, you need to see this. (laughs) And I took you to the movies and we saw this. Um, and it was a fantastic experience. Then you taught, you took me to see birds of prey and it was also a fantastic experience. Um, (laughs) but a budget of 30, 30 or 55 million dollars. I don't know. That's a what? huge leap. Like yeah. that's what it said on Wikipedia, 30 or 55 million dollars. So, that's quite the jump, but I'll go with it. With a box office of 72.3 million dollars and a rating of 78% on Rotten Tomatoes. 
Y'all smoking dick. <laughs> we open to the sound of those horns with added heartbeats with the title shot and the camera descends down to a trailer. A little girl named Violet comes out, her mom asking her where she's going. She's going to pick flowers. Just going to pick some flowers. Her mom, she's so freaking cute. She's that adorable. little girl is so adorable. She's also in The Haunting of Hill House. And she's, she's just an absolute pleasantry on the screen. Um... Uh, her mom commenting her for, to not wander too far. Florida 1980 pops up as Violet continues walking down the path inside the woods. She is picking some flowers, spotting a lonely, distinct trailer behind the bush. Um, taking her flowers, she overhears a woman in a, in a hat named Rose singing as she picks petals off a flower. Violet comes up to the woman asking her where she found those flowers. Rose tells her that she knows all the secret places, extending a flower out to her asking if she wants one. I love this because you're already kind of starting to get this psychic experience where Violet just seems so enticed by Rose for right. no apparent reason and it's great energy draws energy exactly and i love the symbolism too how you were just talking about the describing the scene where she's kind of like singing but she's also picking the petals off of flowers she's kind of like violet in the flower itself yeah right? she's destroying it yeah she's prepping <laughs> she's where, prepping what she's gonna do to poor violet with, here with poor violet she admires the flower she yeah. admires the beauty of it and that's why she's picking it and trying to collect it for her own right where yeah rosa hat is destroying it right exactly it's nothing to her it's right. inferior um where violet finds it beautiful violet approaches her taking the flower and looking back at rose rose tells her about about why she's wearing the hat claiming that she's she always does and that it's even a part of her name her friends calling her rose the hat violet thinks that it looks like a magician's hat and <laughs> her little lisp because she's missing her two front mm -hmm. teeth looks like a magician's hat <laughs> rose That's agrees while taking the hat off performing a playful trick while uh, while doing so a twig snaps violet's attention turning to the direction a man named Named Crow Daddy is standing in the distance, uh, staring at them. Rose brings her attention back to her, telling her not to worry, and she's missing the trick. She continues, telling Violet to reach inside. She does, amazed by finding a purple flower, calling it pretty. Rose calls it special, commenting about her magic as her being magic as well. She asks Violet to guess the color of the flower in her hand. Violet, without without hesitation, um. Oh, excuse me. Violet is hesitant, but Rose assures her that it's fine. She confidently answers purple. Rose is pleased. More people standing around watching them now. She brings Violet's attention back to her by calling out her name in reference to the color of the flower. That was fucking genius. Yeah. She's like, Violet! And like... And she's technically talking about the flower, but she already knows that it's Violet's name and how Violet is turning her attention to her. It's just... So, so much eye candy on this screen right now. Right. It, it's it's like perfect directing and great storytelling because you're literally showing what's about to happen. Yeah. Like we know that, okay, like the first dude showing up is just like, okay, that's odd. Because Rose doesn't feel entirely intimidating right now. No, but she quickly does. Yes, she does. Very, very soon. She eats the flower, Violet shocked, telling her that they don't eat flowers because they're special. Rose grabs her wrists, dropping all the rest of the flowers out of her hat, commenting that the special ones taste the best. The crowd approaches them, Violet uncomfortable wanting to go back to her mom. Rose forces her to stay by holding her wrist, drawing blood, calling her special as her eyes glow blue. 
<laughs> glowing eyes, my friends. You know me and my glowing fucking eyes. <laughs> this had me from the start. It was already a three out of five for me. You, Everyone who knows me, if glowing eyes appear, it's an automatic three out of five. Then the rest is just like, if you want this, these other scores, got to have everything else for me. But that glowing is automatically... Eyes. Oh my fucking god! Like, yeah, you call me simple. I don't care, but it fucking rules. Yeah, it fucking rules, and it looks great. It looks awesome because the way that they even have this show is it's more around the pupil instead of the whole iris, and right. that is just phenomenal. Like, and it looks really good. Like, I don't, I, whoever they did in post and what they did in post, like, really paid attention to this detail on the pupils here because it is just really good and the way that they move in certain motions when they're moving pretty quickly and things like that it's like it stays super consistent like it's just it's not missing a fucking beat and it's clean cut very beautiful to even look at but also terrifying of course absolutely and then just the lines like oh the special ones are the ones that taste the best yeah like then they cut away from what happens and obviously as the viewer you're just like damn they're doing obviously something terrible to this person yes and we don't like learn exactly what they do until later on yeah although it's a great intro to the knot i'm 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 curious cuz in this moment i don't think they killed violet i don't think she died in this moment no I, they would have probably taken her somewhere. i think they took her yeah i yeah. think they took her somewhere just how they did brad cuz like I mean, come on, it's super close to her mom, and it's just, yeah. Right. You also see them drive away. Yes. Very soon, but yeah. Yeah, which is not in the theatrical. No. Um, cut to Violet's mom searching for her and calling her name, the true knot leaving in their caravan. Transition to the Overlook Hotel, the print mm. of the iconic carpet in chapter one old ghost young danny is riding his big wheel down the hall love how he kept the sound design here too very very attention to detail here he did stanley kubrick justice with just this opening scene oh 100 that tracking shot and everything fucking looks awesome he stops in front of room 237 looking at the ominous number the doorknob squeaks as it turns and the door creaking open his breathing is staggered as he peers into the darkness a naked old woman slowly emerging out of the shadows Danny wakes up from the nightmare catching his breath he walks to his bathroom stopping when he hears the water in the tub slosh uh, cautiously opening the door the old wilted woman is sitting behind the curtain in the tub love the fact that every single time you see the bathroom with the tub the curtain's always halfway drawn that's fucking genius that's yeah. so cool i leave my my shower in my bathroom for my tub always halfway drawn literally because of this movie Oof, yeah i would feel like you would have it all completely open nope because of this movie nope you're like one day i'm gonna see her I I, that to and i will open arms bring it in Bring it in. I'm a, I'm a huge a fan. I'm a huge fan. Bring it in. Um, but like it's it's super. <laughs> this is interesting right here because I don't think this part is the testament here because I, I put out a tweet a month ago saying that whatever everyone's reason is for not liking this movie because I, I have seen this movie actually be extremely divisive. And whatever their reasons are, it never I never see it from their perspective. Um, I was listening to, I believe, the Horror Virgin um, on their episode for uh, Doctor Sleep. And um, 
none of them liked it. And I was so I was so upset. I was just like, oh my gosh. Like And they have great takes all the time too. They do. Yeah. And and they they made valid points, I feel like. I, I feel like they, they made a lot of valid points. But one of the, the arguments that I always hear is that they people don't like that it is so fan servicey for the shining. It's a sequel to The Shining. Right. I don't I don't I that doesn't sound like a good argument to me. <laughs> it's a, it's a sequel of The Shining. Like For, you, yeah, you you should a, have that. Although it can stand on its own as its own movie, yeah. it's also like The Shining is the origin story of how right. Danny lives his life. And I I think we it's get to see how he is now because of the how he got affected by right. like the events of The Shining. And I don't know if it's the Danny part. I think it's the the little jabs to the shining that he had little little lovable jabs as you're saying jabs usually is a negative thing but i'm using this as a positive but with those those miniature jabs for the shining i think with the whole aspect of that it makes it feel it, it makes it feel and I'm trying to see it from everyone's else. I'm I'm trying to play devil's advocate here. It, it, I guess it makes it feel like fan service. Like for example, Abra's um, home address. It's 1980. Like that's the start of her home address. The year The Shining came out. So I think that's what they mean when it comes to it being a little too fan servicey for The Shining. Sure. And I I could see that. Also, it, but, like, stuff but like to that me, it's more, not annoying. Like yeah, a, it's Easter eggs rather right. than something that's distracting in your face fan service. Right. The way I see like all the events from like you know the little jabs, like you said, from The Shining and stuff like that. Like a scene like this. Like, does this scene have to be in this movie to further the plot? I think so because we. Oh yeah, one hundred percent. No, this for sure needs to be <laughs> right. in there. Like Danny is going through a traumatic. Um, or he has PTSD, essentially, yeah, exactly. right? That's exactly and what it is. I, I see it as symbolism as someone who has like maybe some mental illness or some uh, mental health problems where it's like, how are you dealing with past trauma? Yeah. And then he learns how to compartmentalize the trauma in his head, aka those boxes that we'll talk about soon. But it's like, although you can never get rid of it, you can find a way to live with it. Yeah. And I love that. I'm huge on that kind of stuff. So that's something I always really appreciate. So, yeah. I agree. She slowly moves the curtain back, rising out of the tub, stepping out. He immediately goes out of the bathroom, closing the door, but watching it. The woman comes closer, Danny spotting her shadow underneath. He covers his eyes, peeing on himself as the doorknob turns. His mom, Wendy, comes up behind him, assuring him that it it is okay. He immediately embraces her. Shout out to Alex Asso, by the way. Like, Alex Asso, so fucking good in this. And she plays the perfect Wendy. She 100% evoked Shelley Duvall to me. I I thought she was fantastically picked for this. Like she, yes. Like even the mannerisms mannerisms and the fluster in her voice and talk. Like, you know, like you, I felt Shelley. She captured the character very well. Absolutely. Fucking shout out to Alex um, Asso. For sure. She, I always get Alex Asso and Jocelyn Donahue mixed up. Um, They're, Completely different, but I think it's because they kind of play the similar roles in a way. Yeah, they're both moms. Um, Cut to them in in his room, Wendy putting on clean clothes for him. 
She asks what happened. He continues sucking his thumb, something he picked up in the Overlook after his traumatic event um, in 237, wanting him to speak to her about to bring up the events at the Overlook, pleading for him to speak. But he continues his vow of silence. Wendy checks on the bathroom, not seeing anything. She looks down at the bath mat, spotting two wet footprints, which I also believe this was not in the theatrical cut either. I don't remember that. Yeah, yeah, I don't remember that being in the theatrical. Cut to Danny sitting on a on a bench outside alone. Dick appears, um, asking about him not speaking. Danny is quiet. Dick continuing about uh, when the first time, when the first time, when the first time they met, and him not speaking much when he first met him as well. Commenting about Danny having to spend a winter at that rotten Overlook hotel. His dad, um, as dark as he is bright, Dick reassuring him that he shines like fire in a place that it was terrible for, that it was terrible in. He asked Danny if he remembers the first time he spoke to him telepathically. Dick speaks to him uh, through his mind, commenting about it making him feel good, knowing that he was not alone. Danny speaks that his dad tried to kill him. Dick claims that it wasn't all him. The hotel fed on his darkness, but Jack has some light as well. He continues sharing that Danny has some dark and that they all have both. Now, this was interesting, and this is where I applaud Mike Flanagan because in The Shining, the novel, Dick doesn't die. Dick Holleran right. is alive. He does not die in The Shining, the novel. And I thought this was a very respectful way to bring, to bring Dick back inside of film was just to allow him to stay with him in, in his head pretty much. Um, and initially him replacing Tony, I guess, but, um, smart move, super smart, yeah. super smart. I thought this was fucking fantastic. Uh, this worked so well for me and it, it, it flows properly. Like it, this feels legit in their type of world with psychics, right? Like this feels legit, and, and I love that he's kind of like the character of like in the Guardian Angel too, where he's absolutely kind of trying to help direct his life in the right way. Yeah, and I love what he says. He has great wisdom, saying like, "Yeah, everyone has some dark in them." That's true. He's making the character more humans, like yes. you're not just like a guy who has like the shine, right? You have superpowers. Like you have to like do with what you have and do right in the world. With yeah, it. it's like you have a gift. Don't waste it. Exactly. Danny knows that it uh, it isn't done with him yet. Dick asks if he pondered uh, if he if he pondered when he showed up when he when he did, claiming that his grandma did the same for him, teaching him, and he taught Danny, knowing uh, knowing that he will someday teach someone else. Danny comments that he won't shine because it's dangerous. Dick agrees. Danny continuing that she, quote-unquote, found him and will come back until she gets him. Dick agrees, knowing that the Overlook is condemned and those starving old ghosts that are, that are planning to come for him. And it won't end with just her. Danny brings up what Dick told him, calling them pictures in a book, and they couldn't hurt him. Dick explains that the shining is like food, comparing them to mosquitoes, claiming that it is like pictures to him, but he didn't shine like Danny, adding that nobody shines like him, comparing him to an, a million watt battery, but he can't do anything about that now, knowing that he's older now, and he has to hear it. He tells Danny, quote, world's a hungry place, and the darkest things are the hungriest, and they'll eat what shines, Swarm it like mosquitoes or leeches. Can't do nothing about that. End quote. Sharing that he he can turn what they what they came for against them. Going over a story over over his sick asshole of a grandfather eventually dying, but he came back as a ghost. Then he was real. His grandma some 
uh, his grandma showed him a trick. Dick pulls out a box, instructing Danny to instructing Danny to know the box, handing it to him so he can teach, so he can touch it, wanting him to know every single inch of the box. I love how he explains this too. He's like, "Stick your nose in it. Tell me if it has a smell." And it, I like right. that whole concept of like, know this box inside and out, feel this box, understand this box, because this box. Is going to be your trap. This is this right. is what you're going to create in order to pretty much Ghostbuster. <laughs> this is how I take this thing too, with like the whole box and stuff like that. It's kind of like know yourself, know your own mind. Yes, learn about yourself and be able to live with like the traumas that are haunting you that are going to come after you. Yeah, you don't know when they're going to come for you. Same thing as like people who have like traumatic stress. It's like you don't know when you're going to have a panic attack. There's triggers and stuff like that. I think it's like when that happens, this is the stuff that you have to do for yourself to get control of that situation. And right. I love that whole entire concept. I agree. And this is just something for me. I don't know if that's actually with the intention of the actual scene itself, but that's how I read it, which makes Fair me enough. love this movie even more. <laughs> that's the best part. Interpreting film is so much fun. Yeah. Danny questions it. Dick sharing that he's going to build one just like it in his mind. Knowing the next time she comes, she comes, Danny will be ready. He prepares Danny for his mom to come back. Uh, Wendy comes sprinting over to Danny, screaming his name. Danny now alone, she hugs him, telling him not to ever do that uh, again. The camera pans out to reveal a missing child's poster of Violet. <sighs> Cut to them watching Looney Tunes, and it's fucking crazy that he lives in Florida right, right. now. Like we, You don't know that until later. Um, or maybe even kind of right now when you see the missing po- poster, but Amber Alerts, that's totally a thing. But like you kind of get the sense that like, huh, interesting. You're far away from where you were. Right. Yeah. Danny, um, Danny looks behind the couch, then gets up and walks into the hall. The woman in the tub moves the curtain back for him. Danny walks inside, closing the door as the woman stands. A quick cut to a locket box in the snow maze at the overlook. The screams of the woman as Danny locks her inside. The screams in here just so... Great visceral and guttural and it, it, it she feels like she's it sounds like she's in pain yeah and it's awesome <laughs> great sound design the sound design's and insane here such a badass scene to see him like do that just go in there and close the door behind him yeah that's great that's facing your fears right there that's great right and i like that they actually don't show it because of the fact that the box itself is obviously super cg and with the, and it's fine. It doesn't really take you out of it, but the box is obviously CG. And I, I like the fact that they didn't show it so they don't have to depend on CG so much. Because mm-hmm. if they would have showed it, then they would have had to probably depend a lot more on the CG aspect. And as we know with Mike Flanagan, he very rarely uses CG or very minimal amounts of CG. Like it's it's pretty much almost non-existent in most of his stuff, which is pretty fucking cool. Um Danny comes back to his mom. She asks if he's okay. He finally speaks to her, telling her that he's okay. They hug and continue watching TV. Transition to Danny Older, who I'm now going to call him Dan as being older, waking up in bed with a swollen eye. He remembers the night before of a, of a ton of drinking, playing pool, and meeting a woman. He sits up in bed, looking back at the woman, passed out in her own vomit. Great. 
<laughs> Cue Breaking Bad. Uh, the timeline mm. being now in New Jersey in 2011. This is enough to uh, cause him to run to the toilet and puke himself. Uh, and puke. Looking at his eye in the mirror, remembering back at the bar, a big dude straight decks him in the eye, but Dan returns the favor by demolishing this guy's face with a fucking billiard ball. And I I love how he's using his dad's line, take your fucking medicine. It's great. Yeah, it's a great, great callback. He goes back into the room, looking at the woman in bed, then at an empty bottle of whiskey. Back to another reminder of them going on a bender inside her apartment last night, putting on his clothes, checking his wallet for his money. It all, it's all gone. Looking around for his cash, he spots her purse on the table with, with her wallet inside. He takes her wallet, pulling out some food stamps and cash. About to leave, he hears a baby calling for his mom. Fuck. Yeah, it's a hard scene to watch, to be honest. Yeah, yeah, this scene is rough as all fuck. Like, it's it's crazy. Like, plus this little kid's like, maybe, what, 18 months? Maybe two? Yeah. Like, like barely it, started walking? Yeah, like, barely walking, like, poor kid. Confused as hell? Yeah, confused yeah. as hell. Although, it's- I'm not gonna lie, this kid... <laughs> Uh, he kind of looks like I don't know if you ever remember that movie Bad Santa. Yeah, he looks like the kid from Bad Santa. He looks like he that. could be his I little brother. Totally <laughs> uh, this scene is kind of very important too because this is our first major introduction as the adult Dan. Yes, and kind of see where he's at as like a human being. Yes, where he's like he's a he's a fucking low life. He's a piece of yeah, shit. Yeah, he's a piece of shit. Yeah. Dan stares at the boy asking for his name. He uh, places the little boy on the bed next to the woman with a small bag of Cheez-Its. That's enough to hold him over. There you go. About to leave, Dick appears commenting that he can't that he uh, can't at least put the money back. Dan uh, complaining that she took his and probably bought it on the cocaine with it. Dick calls his name. Dan looks back at the kid trying to lock his memory away. Dick explained that that won't be that he won't be able to do that and he would have have to take his memories with him, that being the real ghost. He leaves out of the apartment, transitioned to Anniston, New Hampshire at the Stone residence. David and Lucy go in to listen to their daughter Abra play the piano. They tell her that it is time for bed. She tells them she uh, wants to play the piano a little bit longer, them reminding her that she has a birthday party tomorrow. They put her to bed, kissing her goodnight. While they are while they are all asleep, Lucy and David wake up from the from the piano playing downstairs. They head down there, looking inside the piano room, but no Abra, no anyone. The, the piano is playing by itself. David and Lucy afraid at what they are seeing. That is not in the theatrical. Yeah, I was about to say that. Yeah, yeah, so that one's not in the theatrical. But one thing that I do like to bring up here is, and sorry to bring up race, but the race. Like, it's a fucking interracial relationship. 100% Abra was not written black. She was not written black in Stephen King's story. But yet, Mike Flanagan chose to... And the way I picture it, I have no idea if this is true, but Mike Flanagan, when he got his Abra and Abra being black, I don't think his conscious decision was she needs to be black. No, I she's think she's just perfect for the role. Exactly. But he made that make sense where it's just like she's black and white. She's a mixed girl and things like that. Because I think Kylie Kieran, I think she's half Irish and black. But um, hmm. with this here, like this is such a fantastic way to get rid of those black tropes and the problematic aspects of what the shining had where you had that main black trope of the mystical Negro. And on top of the mystical Negro, 
he was the sacrificial Negro. Yeah. So, like, uh, granted, some can pre- even argue that she's also technically a mystical Negro, but at the same time, her power is for herself. It, it's not necessarily for the aid of another character. It's for right. the aid of herself. So, in some ways, that trope is completely thrown out of the window, which is fucking fantastic here. It's really, really great. Meanwhile, in Long Island, New York, a young teenage girl is watching Casablanca in a theater. A man named Sam sits next to her. She she doesn't acknowledge him. He calls he calls her name Andy, commenting that she's prettier she's prettier than her picture. He her rebuttal that he's older than his, and that fucking line speaks volumes, yeah. volumes to where you're now kind of able to see like a little bit of where her head's at, like oh, you're much older than yours or than your picture. And you can kind of see that, like, you get the she's underage. Yeah, like, yeah. yeah, you can understand, like, okay, she's underage. Like, got it. Uh, he cuts to the chase about them staying or leaving. She questions if he wants to watch the movie. He takes her hand and she places her, her head on his shoulder. Rose is sitting in the back with Crow Daddy. Uh, she doesn't understand what's the big deal. Um, commenting about being a little gross, but not interesting. Crow Daddy, um, who I'm now going to probably just refer to as Crow from now on, tells her to j- uh, just watch, promising that it's interesting. Andy whispers in Sam's ear if he's tired and for him to sleep, his head drops. Rose's interest is now peaked. Andy reaches in his pockets, taking out his wallet. Crow tells her uh, to continue watching because this is the best part and that it never gets old, even though he's watched her do it three times already. Andy tells Sam to sleep deeper while pulling out a pocket knife, commenting that, quote, the pain you feel is only a dream. You can explain a lost wallet when your wife asks, but you can't explain this. You'll see, you'll this you'll see every day when you look in the mirror and every time you'll see it, you'll say out loud, quote, I like little girls. End quote. <laughs> while telling while telling him this, as she is carving two cuts in his cheek. I love this moment, and I love how pleased Rose is in this moment. It's just like I want her. Yeah, like you can tell. Like in that moment, she was chosen by Rose, and that was so fucking awesome to see. Holy shit! And he continues quote. And the next time you go looking for a little girl online, I want you to remember the time you got bit by a snake, a snake in a white blouse whose face is blank. End quote. Fuck. Dude, these lines are like great and they hit so The delivery. Well. The delivery is great. Phenomenal. And I love how Absolutely like, you were phenomenal. saying like Rose the Hat is just loving this because I feel like she sees herself in Snake by Andy as we'll soon to call her. Yes. But. I believe she does yeah. as well. Like I, I, I love the way that she, I love the way that a- that Andy even portrays herself. Like she with just a shit ton of confidence. Yeah. As well, like it, it's really, really great. And uh, Emily, Emily Allen Lind is the one who plays actress, plays yeah. Andy. And I, I believe like she just has this, this. Very interesting persona because the first time I, I saw her was in the babysitter as a young, young like kid, like maybe 12 or 13. I think she was maybe 17 when she filmed this. But uh, now, like seeing her blossom to the actress that she is now, like I yes. believe she's in the new Gossip Girl and things like that. But I feel like every um, time she's yeah. on screen, she can steal like the show from everyone. Oh, absolutely. She has like this such a great personality as like an actress to she's fucking scary. Just deliver, yeah, haunting lines. Yeah, she's and scary. 
She plays a really good villain. She does. And she plays more, a really roles. good crazy person. Yeah. Like she has this look where she makes her eyes go really wide right. and she tilts her head. And it's her bone structure too on her jawline that just makes it so pronounced, pro- uh, profound right. that it feels intimidating. She has a presence on screen, which right. is great. Like I feel like if she were to yell at me, and I think she's like maybe nineteen. <laughs> right. If she were to yell at me, who's a, who's or a thirty-year-old like, okay, man? I'm sorry. Like yes. I would be like, shit, my bad. Fuck. Like you right. Like <laughs> you right. She kisses his cheek, removing the blood from her lips just to taste it. Rose is enthused. While Andy is walking out of the theater, Crow is walking behind her, calling out, calling out to her. She turns around, using her power to, uh, using her power on him to stop. Um, when she says, you want to leave me alone, he stops dead in his tracks. Andy is about to walk away. Rose grabs her arm. Andy says that she wants to let her go, but it doesn't work on Rose. Her smiling, saying that, no, <laughs> I don't. Cut to Dan um, waking up outside, trying to take a sip from a whiskey bottle in his hand. Nothing inside. He sits up coughing and trying to gain his composure. He heads to a bus station, putting money on the table, asking how far can it get him. Hoping, Hopping on the bus to, uh, to Fraser, New Hampshire at Aber's fifth birthday party, Aber runs or cut to Abra's fifth birthday party. He didn't. He didn't go to their birthday party. Um, Abra runs to, up to her mom, handing her a card that says "hello" with a smiley face on the O, calling it a secret card. Lucy gives her thanks. The magician is performing performing magic tricks with the kids at her party. Abra commenting about her knowing magic uh, and that she can do that as well as he performs. I like how the magician's kind of getting irritated. Yeah, too. he's kind of a dick. In he's, his yeah, he's like, "That's nice, sweetie." Good for yeah, you. Cool. I'm the guy doing the show. Right. Now. It's like, motherfucker, my Although, dad is paying you. I was about to say, it's like, you hired <laughs> me like, through your parents. You, you should well. have me on stage with you right now, actually. Cut to Lucy and David cleaning up the party, joking about no nap time. Lucy goes inside first, and then David, um, she's looking up at the ceiling. He notices all the forks on the floor, Lucy calling him to look up. When they do, the spoons are hanging up from the ceiling, Abra coming, coming up behind them, saying her magical phrase, Abracadabra. Her parents are frightened. Abra drops her smile. The spoons come crashing down on the counter. uh, Waking up Dan, who's on the bus, and flowing through Rose as she heads into her trailer. Chapter 2. Empty Devils. Rose heads into her trailer, looking at Andy asleep in her bed. She slams the door, waking her up. Fucking awesome, by the way. I just want to really mention this very quickly. Awesome that this has chapters for the director's cut, right? So you Fucking can, like, pause if phenomenal. You, need to. Um, you could. I don't see why you yeah. why you would, but you could. You can. But I just like the the way that each chapter makes sense. Yeah. For what it's trying to achieve, like it, it just it makes total sense. Apologizing, calling her tough and willful, which is fantastic because we got that exact same line of what Danny was. That's what he was called by one of the ghosts in The Shining when he was, he said that your son is willful is what he oh, says right, when yeah. Lloyd says that to Jack Torrance. So she uses that same uh, line here. Yet she checked her, her track record of six men in three months with those snake bite tattoos on their cheek. This is my only gripe with this movie. And this is literally it is <laughs> the fact that like Andy just like, where's her parents? Did she kill her parents? Is she an orphan? Where's her parents? Like she 
goes with these these people and no one cares. That's true. I mean, granted, it honestly doesn't matter because it it, yeah. it that would probably tell such a that would be a longer movie at that point. It's open to but, interpretation, but it's, right. it feels like she doesn't have a family, or she may have been a runaway, right? Or she killed her family. It could be, yeah. But because like since she's been like. Hunting down these men for what was it? You said six guys in three months. Six men like in three months. One one every other week. Yeah. So I mean, you're, she's doing her research. She's chatting with them. Well, it sounds like she's on her own doing this, like as a vendetta of like fuck these men and stuff like that. And well, so. I, I think I think it's more so that this probably happened to her from someone who was close to her, probably her dad. What? I can and see that. And that this is a really good observation. That's how I picture it. Is that this is what causes her to do this? And this is, pro- and that's probably how she found her power. I'm sure. When, when good call her, maybe someone close to her did this to her, which hopefully not, but obviously something happened to her to have this type of vendetta. Have you read the book? Uh, I have not. No. Yeah. yeah I book, haven't. Her backstory. Maybe. I don't know. Uh, she makes herself some tea, sitting on the bed across from Andy, adding to her name of Snakebite Andy, then asking who she is. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, sitting on the bed across from Andy, um, uh, uh, excuse me, then asking who she is, Andy calling her a crazy bitch who kidnapped her. Rose comments about wanting the truth. Andy is in a daze, calling her the most beautiful woman she's ever seen. She snaps out of it, Rose calling her a pusher, and that they haven't had one in a while, offering Andy a deal, one one that she hasn't offered in over 40 years, asking for, for her age. Andy is 15. Rose, happy with her age, commenting that she is a woman that she is a woman, but one without dents. Gravity not noticing her at her age, but men have. Andy feels shameful. Rose offers her springtime forever, and after 100 years, she may be 17. Quote, eat well, stay young, live long. End quote. Andy wonders about Rose and her friend. Rose corrects her that it's her family, calling them the true knot. What's tied can never be untied. Dan gets off the bus in Fraser, New Hampshire, walking to the center of the town, going up to a model to a model of the town square called Teeny Town. <laughs> While uh, looking at the train, one of the workers, Billy, asks him if he likes it. Dan apologizes and is about to leave, but Billy assures him that it is fine as as he explains the project of Teeny Town. He asks Dan if he's off the bus. Dan shares that he is. He comments that many people don't ride the bus this far unless they're looking for work. Dan agrees on his reason for, for uh, being for work, Billy wondering if he is running away from something. Dan shares that he's running away from himself. Billy knowing that look all too well. I love Billy's line too, where he's just like, he's like, it's hard to run away from yourself because you're always around. <laughs> and I'm yeah, like, like, that's so fucking facts. true, dude. Like, obviously, yeah, logically, yes, you're always around. But like the fact that like your mind is always going to be there. Those thoughts are always going to be there. It's yeah. up to you to either fall in line with those thoughts or try your best to change right cut to them speaking with the with the head of the house explaining the rent that billy paid his first two she goes over the rules dan commenting that he's a quiet tenant the woman knowing the last person she 
the last person said the same thing, allowing him to paint the wall with blackboard paint. She uh, writes the amount and rules on the wall, asking Billy if he's sure about him. He is, letting Dan know that that uh, he stays on the first floor and to speak speak to him tomorrow about work. Dan doesn't understand why he uh, why he's doing this for him since he doesn't know him. Billy knows the look and that he has feelings about people that seems hard to understand. Dan, knowing what he means, is shaking his hand before he leaves. This is so fascinating. Like the rent being so cheap. Yeah, you're completely right. I mean, yes. I'm just kidding. $85 a week? Like that's nuts. Yeah. Are you kidding me? Sheesh. Um, but and that's like kind of a nice room. <laughs> yeah, it must be nice. Bathroom and everything. Yeah, well, yeah. Like, that's kind of a nice room. Studio. Um, but what is so interesting is that like how we kind of see a little bit here of what Dan says later in the film of people having the shine and not knowing it. And I feel like Billy is one of those people where he yeah. had this feeling, this gut he can reaction. Sense he's a good person underneath everything and yeah. has to help people. Right. That's his shine. Exactly. Course. And it's, it's great because like that feels almost factual. Right. Like as us being regular people, we have gut feelings. We have gut right. reactions. It's like you seem like a good person that needs help. Exactly. I've been there. Yeah. Let me help you. Right. right. And even if you have like a gut reaction of just like, oh, that doesn't feel right or something like that, like right. th- that makes Intuition. it feel like all of us have the shine of some right. sort, which is pretty cool that they add that little meta twist to it. I Meanwhile, Andy is sitting on the beach looking at the ocean. Rose comes up to her asking if she's ready. Andy doesn't say anything. Rose telling the rest of the group that she's ready. She looks back, spotting the rest of the true knot. We have Apron Annie, Diesel Doug, Crow Daddy, Grandpa Flick, Silent uh, Sari, Barry the Chunk, Short Eddie. Uh, Andy asks who they are, Rose telling her that that she will find out after and that Grandpa Flick will lead. She leans Andy back, instructing her to have no fear, Andy nervously nodding and obviously having fear. Grandpa Flick speaks, quote, We are the true nuts, and we endure. End quote. They chant in another language before he continues, quote, We are the chosen ones. We are the fortunate ones. What is tied cannot be untied. Here is a woman. Would she join us? Would she tie her life to our life? End quote. They all say yes. Rose instructing her to say the same. Andy does so. Rose grabbing Violet's canister, calling it special. Sharing that that there isn't much of it left. Annie and, and Sari come over toward them to hold Andy down. As Rose explains um, that Violet tastes like flowers. I love this moment because you get this shot of Crow licking his lips. It is fucking insane. Like when she like has that that opening of the canister and you get the thirst of like how he just kind of licks his lips very subtly in that moment it's just like i remember that taste like it's fucking phenomenal like holy shit this this whole thing gives me chills it's a great scene because we have full circle of what happened to violet what became of her we have the scene of like the knot and great costume design by the way too oh my god i call that out because each character feels like their own character yeah diesel dog over here looking like vin diesel in pitch black fucking dope their own personality and character comes out through what they're wearing and stuff like that which is perfectly for in the introduction of the whole entire quote unquote family and stuff like that. Yeah. But we also get this great ritual that we learn what they do to, I guess, transfer the power or become a member of the knot. And yeah. there's some it's, great it's cinematography a... here too. Because oh yeah. When she opens that canister, the camera like turns sideways. So you just see Rose, the hat 
right above Snake Bite Andy and just the smoke or yes. the steam going into her body. Yeah. It's just so great. Now this is this was this tactic was first used in 2016 for Hush. He used this exact same tactic in Hush when he when he would make the camera fall down oh, so just good. like so. It was fucking phenomenal. So it's great that he's he's kind of directing the, the cinematographer who I I don't know who it is actually and I my apologies. Um but that direction I know it's he uses this person quite often for sure. But it's fantastic how this kind of works here she opens the canister breathing the steam in almost in an orgasmic nature leaning down on andy releasing the steam over her face telling her to breathe in deeply she does so rose blowing it further into her mouth andy begins gasping deeply and convulsing roll rose telling her to embrace it andy continues gasping and grunting turning them into screams of no her eyes glowing as she growls cut to dan asleep woken up by a fly buzzing and landing on his nightstand he notices a decaying hand over his stomach trying to get get out of the bed slowly the woman he left back in her apartment now decaying grabs his arm whispering a message from our sponsors hey it's kaylee cuoco for priceline ready to go to your happy place for a happy price well why didn't you say so just download the priceline app right now and save up to 60 percent on hotels so whether it's cousin kevin's kazoo concert in kansas city go kevin or becky's bachelorette bash in bermuda you never have to miss a trip ever again so download the priceline app today your savings are waiting go to your happy place for a happy price go to your happy price priceline and we're back, whispering that they have found them yet, that they haven't found them yet, and um, that they were used to her son crying because she left him alone all the time. Jesus fucking Christ. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. So so nobody did anything, and they and they have yet to be found. She rolls her dead son over, the baby calling out to his mom. Um, I also could have so dark. It's super dark, but I honestly could have done without the baby saying mommy again. Right. I could have done without it, but it's fine. Uh, Dan falls back. The woman and baby gone. He looks over at the bottle of whiskey. Dan goes downstairs to knock on Billy's door. He answers Dan asking uh, what he meant about knowing his look. Billy calls him sick and tired, but also asks if he's sick of sick or tired of being sick and tired. Deep. <laughs> Dan comments that he he needs help. Billy inviting him inside to talk about it. Cut to an AA meeting hosted by Doctor John. He con- who is also uh, in he's Gerald in Gerald's game. He congratulates Bobby for being three years sober. The room applauding. John asks if anyone is celebrating any sober milestones or if anyone is a newbie who has at least twenty four hours. John looks at Dan. He stands up. Everyone applauding. Dan is speaking with John about being new uh, new to town as he twirls the coin. Billy introduces him to John, explaining that he's fresh off the bus. John comment about his, uh, comments about his eyes, but shares that, um, um, that they don't pass judgment. And uh, I wrote that actually kind of wrong. 
um, that they don't pass judgment and he's seen worse. Billy commenting that John served the town for most of his life, delivering his brother Frankie. John shares that that Billy is per- is a perfect person to be uh, to have under his wing. Dan thanking him and not and not used to this particular type of hospitality. John saying a catchphrase and Billy chiming in to complete it while John rubs his wrist. Dan notices but ignores it as Billy uh, Billy and him conclude their conversation. Uh, he shakes Dan. Dan's hand inviting him back. Billy commenting about him being a good man. Dan ig- ignores it and goes back to John. He's like, yeah, Billy, whatever. Um, <laughs> hey, Doc. <laughs> he shares um, He shares to John that he lost his watch. Worrying about a kid who has um, uh, Goucher's disease. And I, I, like, I like how he doesn't know how to say it. He's like right. gouchers. He's and, like, I'm not a doctor, so I can't say well, the word. But it's like, I'm trying to... I see the word, I just right. can't pronounce it to you. Exactly. And I think that's how it is. Like like he's able to kind of visualize the word. Right. And it's really but cool. Because he's never said it before. Exactly. He can't say it. Exactly. And it's really cool though that we have um Dan when he uses this a minimal amount of his shine. Just so minimal that he's still off the radar, you know? Right. Like it's, it's fucking great. John is is in shock, but Dan continues telling him exactly where he left his watch, telling him to check on the soap dispenser and saying his goodbyes. John has his watch in hand, asking Dan how he knew. Dan blames it on lucky guess, and he's like, "Bullshit!" And uh, love the call out here of the office being the exact same office as Ullman's office, right? And, and it's the just in the shining is his fucking impossible room. Uh, John doesn't accept that. Dan trying to still play it off as as a guess. He asks Dan, um, why, is, why is he there? And what does he want to do there? Dan just wants something different and better than what he's doing currently. John uh, leans in, asking if he goes to church or believes in something bigger than him. Dan doesn't understand um, why that matters, but he believes that people people's actions make them better, not their beliefs. John accepts, asking about his orderly experiences and if he's working. Dan works a few a few shifts at, at Teeny Town. John mentioning that um, the hospice riveting house uh, is looking for a good orderly. As if dying people bother him, Dan shakes his head, chiming in that we're all dying in the uh, we're dying in the world is being the world is just being one big hospice with fresh air. Haunting line and very like yeah cynical, but it's super cynical. But yes, it's one hundred percent haunting and it's not not true. It's his delivery. It, like the delivery is perfect for this. Where it's just yeah. like yeah, I mean we're all technically born to die. Like that's a fucked up way to look at it, but. That's it's real. That's yeah. real. Like that's 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 real life. Transition to Grandpa Flake listening to Ray Noble on the radio. Fantastic callback again to The Shining. This being what plays inside the gold room in The yeah. Shining. Uh, this scene looks so good too. Oh, this scene's great. Up. This scene's great. Andy wakes up for the uh, the conversion ritual. She looks around, everyone doing their thing, greeting, smiling, and clapping for her. I like how James is the only one who claps. Like, I feel like that wasn't <laughs> scripted. And James is like, oh, well, all right. <laughs> no one's all about this? Okay. Yeah, it, it's crazy how much him and Flanagan look just alike. They're brothers, but like they look like twins. Yeah. Like they look just alike. <laughs> Rose coming up behind her, greeting her with that iconic, well, hi there. 
<laughs> Andy asks, how long was she out? Rose commenting for a few days. She's upset about it hurting and feeling and feeling like she was dying. Rose knowing it did and adding that she did actually die. Um, and she will feel better after she eats. This is why I classify this as a vampire movie. That's fair. And this yeah. is why I classify it as one of the best unorthodox vampire movies of all time. I see it. Well, yeah, I agree with you. That's a vampire movie. I also see it as a movie about addiction. And having which every which every vampire about. movie right. also is. But yes. Exactly. Absolutely. The um, it goes away. Have to get more. Right. Absolutely. Andy wonders if she is still human. Rose asking if she, if she cares. She extends a hand, bringing Andy over to Flick. He he gives her a hug. Abra is getting ready for bed. She asks her mom um, if they are scared of if they are scared of them, um, or if they are scared of her. Her mom tells her that that they love her more than anything. Then wishing her a good night. Dan is mopping the floors. A little cat named Azrael is searching for a room to go inside. By the way, I looked up that that word Azrael, and it's Hebrew, and it means God is my help. Thought that was very interesting. Where Azrael is literally just this death cat, <laughs> and oh, and, and he, he she's there. In order to let you know that, like, you're about to pass, and I'm going to be here with you. You're not going to go alone, pretty much. Yeah. So she scratches on the door until it opens, Dan whispering to leave the patient alone. He goes after the cat, calling her, calling her out of the room and about to take Azrael off the man's bed. The man thinks it is a doctor, noticing the cat on his bed. Dan asks if he wants a doctor. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um... And and that he'll just move the cat. He tells Dan no, and that he that he knew she would come, commenting about the cat always seeming to know when it's when it's time, guessing that it's time for him as well. Dan tries to assure him that that the cat is just being silly, but the man knows that Azrael knows when it's time for them to go to quote unquote sleep, commenting that he's going to die soon. Dan sits down next to him, holding his hand, agreeing that he's going to die. <laughs> So terrifying for that person. Fuck. Like when he sits down, he's like, Yeah. You're 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 gonna die. Yeah, he doesn't want to lie. Right. And he feels empathy, obviously. He does. And you can kind of see him kind of humanizing more as a character in this scene itself. Yes. Uh, I think it, it's one of the most terrifying things of like you knowing that cat has been going around and every time it's like picked someone. They're You're gonna, gonna die. die, yeah. And then you wake up and you see the cat on your bed. Like I can't even imagine that yeah. feeling. It's and I so think, terrifying. and that, that's why I think I love the name so much. And I think yeah. it, it is perfect for this cat because it, it's it's like I don't want you to die alone. Like right. you, you, no one deserves that kind of thing. Is what this cat feels like and it's thinking. It's funny talking about like The Shining and stuff like that because. Even like when I was watching this, I introduced this movie to my roommate and she doesn't do like, or housemate, she doesn't do horror movies. Mm-hmm. But I was like, you know what? You, you'll probably still appreciate Doctor Sleep. I will let you know when the things get very intense. You can cover your eyes. But she even says like, oh yeah, cats are very intuitive of like when that kind of stuff happens. And I was looking it up. I was like, oh, that's actually a thing. And we always talk about like, oh yeah, like animals always know when there's an earthquake about to happen and stuff like that. They're very intuitive. And I was like, oh, 
Not animals mine. have like the shining. <laughs> My fucking animals <laughs> they literally have, they have no fucking idea. Yeah. <laughs> they're, they're like, when it's happening, they're just like, oh shit. Right. But I find it very interesting. Maybe in this universe, like the animals also have like the shine. They know what's about to happen. Cause you can look at the cat. The cat like starts like sitting there and just like, starts staring at him and just and it's like, purring as well. You're gonna die. Yeah, like it. Like, it, yo, it relax. It's trying to make this. It, it, one thing that I do know that cats do do for sure is like if you are feeling sad or something like that, like they tend Sense to it and comfort you. Right. They tend to purr even if if they're not next to you, they'll just start purring. Right. Because it's like a, a way. It and. Supposedly, I, I don't know how true this is, but supposedly there's studies that, that were done that purring for cats, um, it releases endorphins in humans' brains. Mm-hmm. Um, so that sound of comfort. Exactly. Uh, but it, it's also super interesting in this moment that he has with this man as well. Like how he is so blunt about it, but at the same time, he's now letting him know, like, I, I'm here for you. And he still wants to leave because he's like, I feel like I shouldn't be here for you. Right. But I feel like I also should be here for you. I have the skill set to like walk you through this. Right. He is about to uh, get someone, but the man tells him no. Continuing that he he knew it was coming, but uh, that doesn't make it less scary. Dan thinks it might be uh, just like he said, going to sleep, adding that there's nothing scary about sleeping. The man calls him um, a strange doctor, calling him Dr. Sleep. And I, I love it. He's like, you're a strange doctor. Uh, Dr. Sleep, that's what you are. He starts rambling about his fears, Dan speaking to him in his mind that there's nothing to be afraid of and that it is it is like going to sleep. This calms the man. He thanks Dan as he exhales. That would have scared the shit out of me. Like if I, I'd be like, oh fuck, what the fuck is happening? Like, the cat runs away, it's like you're gonna live now, you're good. <laughs> <laughs> scared like, back to life. That was scared the shit out of me. Dan believes that he shouldn't be there, but uh, the man tells him he is exactly where he should be, commenting that he sees his wife. His breathing sharp. Uh, his breathing is now sharp, exhaling his last breath as a bit of steam leaves his body. Dan goes back home, taking off his shoes, looking at the wall. He sees the message "hello" with uh, with a smiley face on the O. Approaching the wall, he takes a piece of chalk, writing high, back, um, Abra's uh, laughing and fall- finally falling asleep. Um, it is just fucking phenomenal how powerful she is. Yeah. And the reason why she's so powerful is like the fact that she constantly is practicing and using it. Right. She's like, not afraid to use her powers, but she's not also at all. Not trying to show it off to Absolutely. And I feel like in this moment, she definitely sensed him use his powers, although very little. She was able to like make that connection. It's like, oh, there's someone out there right now mm-hmm. that I can sense that has the same shine as me. And the only thing she does is the friendly hello. Well, you know, it's interesting as well that the if we go back to The Shining where um Dick does mention something of like his brain being like a radio. Right. Right. So I think, I think that's what she's doing. She just, she flicks through channels. Right. And that's all she's doing. And we see her do that as well as obviously, um, uh, Dan later, but we see her do that when she's in class and she's looking up like the information about Brad, but like uh, she makes the connections Exactly. So I think she found that and she was able to sense his version of the shining through that. He sits on the bed, looking at the message, transitioning to the halls of the dark overlook as midnight with the stars and you plays through the gold room. Chapter three, 
little spies. The camera stopping on the glass of Jack on the table. Dan gets his eight-year chip, it being eight years later, giving a speech for a celebration. Thinking, uh, thinking about his dad, remembering seeing a chip like this in his hand a couple of months before he died, remembering it, it being five months. He continues that he broke his arm when he was drunk and he stopped drinking, but he died when he was five, and the only way he, the only way he got to know him was when he would drink. The drinking causing him to feel anger and something that is comparable to. Uh, to what his dad also had, but he he gets to know him a little differently. Jack wanted to get well for him and his mom standing in an AA meeting as well. Dan hold, holds back tears, knowing that his dad wanted to stand where he uh, is standing now, thanking the crowd for the both of them, dedicating the chip to Jack Torrance. This is heartbreaking. Yeah. Like, this moment always gets me a little, like, teary-eyed and a little stuffed up in the in the throat. Um, but like, this is just such a, such a vulnerable moment for Dan that I feel like it just makes it that much more important Yeah, because it shows their relationship with one another and what could it does. Yeah. But like, even as a child, when he would close off, when something vulnerable would happen to him, he wouldn't say anything. He wouldn't speak. He would just be completely closed off. So now seeing that character arc to how he's now open. And, and willing to actually uh, communicate that out is quite incredible to uh, to see. Cut to a patient named Charlie, waking up with Azrael by his feet, Dan greeting him, Charlie knowing his exact reason why he's there. He coughs, Dan asking if he would like a pill if he's um, since he's in pain, but he knows that it won't matter because he's he's heard about these visits from Dr. Sleep, asking Dan what he sees. <laughs> I'm curious, like, how often do these do these old people in the hospice leave their room? Like, how are you hearing these stories? Right. The cat tells them. It must, yeah, it must, <laughs> right? Uh, Dad shuts his eyes, share that he's he sees his twins, his twin sons at the age of four. He played <laughs> the twin son part at the age of four. Goddamn. Because you got the, the twin girls, like the uh, the Grady twins. Right. Like I thought that was just really fascinating. He places his hand over on over Charlie's head, asking if he sees them. Charlie is in bliss when he when he can see it as Dan explains the scene. Why aren't your sons there? Like, if you're in hospice, usually you're in hospice because you're you're dying. Like you're right. like you know normally... late at night. They're probably at home. They're gonna sure. The next Hopefully day. that's it. Hopefully right. I'm hoping that's it. Cause like it's just like where's the love? Yeah. yeah. Like where are your sons at? <laughs> uh, he comments that he isn't scared of hell, um, and that he lived a decent life, not believing that there's such a place anyway. But he's afraid that there's nothing. Dan leans in, sharing that they don't end. Charlie comments about uh, tasting blueberries, wondering if Dan can also as well. Again, adding that he hears Frank Sinatra on his radio and, and they sing Fly Away in unison with each other. Dan is back in the room seeing, um, seeing quote-unquote morning with the smiley O. He writes the message of school and older Abra giggling from his message. Um, he, um, her, mom calling her, her mom calling for her to come down for school but then we cut to the true knot crow going up to flick asking for rose with a raspy tired voice he shares that she's on the watchtower crow asks if he's okay flick responding peachy king peachy king 
<laughs> met with some dry coughs. She goes up to the top, uh, top of one of their trailers, Rose uh, meditating above, apologizing his interruption. She asks if, if he has any luck. Crow claims that they are getting closer, thinking that he might be in Iowa, but he suggests that she, ne- she needs to open up another canister. Rose reminds him that they took steam six months ago, adding that that's nothing. He claims that the kid in Delaware wasn't so steamy and the, and the effects are already showing, not thinking Flick as well. She jokes that he hasn't been well, she jokes that he hasn't been well since Nixon. Crow, uh, Crow understands, but they need to eat, asking if the canister are low. Rose tells him that they aren't as she seductively crawls closer to him, commenting that there's no need to waste, waste since they're, they're so close to the kill. It's so interesting, their relationship. Yeah. Like, you could tell, like, yeah, they got a thing, but it kind of seems like they all have a thing. Like, it seems like they all definitely, let's say, mate. <laughs> it's not the company on tides. So. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. yeah, so, like, it's it's so interesting how their relationship is, but you can kind of you can kind of sense that, like, obviously, Diesel Doug and Silent Sari are definitely a thing. Right. But I think... I, I think, feel like they're all in couples, but yeah. they love each other and they're connected to each other right. so much that the love goes deeper than just, like, a family. Right. But I think April Annie gets with Diesel Doug and, and, and Silent Sari sometimes because they kind of got that thing going on like it's, it's interesting he stops her saying that th- that he might need more steam just to find him claiming that there used to be more steam in the world she cuts him off using the similar example calling it bullshit but crow believes it to be true knowing that the steam is less and weaker uh, he continues going over his rant but he stops him agreeing to open a canister thought to uh, thought to t- uh be tied excuse me uh he Continues going over his rant, but she stops him, agreeing to open a canister tonight to tide everyone over. He gives his thanks, but before he leaves, he shares his sentiment of her knowing the reasons why she is up there every day because the world isn't as steamy and she she's looking for a whale. She opens her cabinet, grabbing a canister, and I love how we are actually able to see that they have a low stockpile because he right. asks her like like are we low on steam and she's like no, no of no, course not good. and you can see like they only have three left yeah and damn like they take steam every six months and you can tell they're trying to hold it out and things like that you have to share it so yeah rose opens the hissing canister then moves out of the way crow assists flick to have first dibs then everyone else breathing in the rest cut to adair iowa uh, cut to adair iowa at the junior baseball game a man shouting out um, number 19 being the one to watch hitting the ball every time as if he could read the pitcher's mind also shout out to the danny lloyd uh cameo here that's the original danny torrance who said that Oh, that's super cool. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That is the original Danny Torrance sitting in stand with the blue baseball cap. That's him. That's wild. I love that. Uh, Crow right behind right behind them as he mentions it. The ball is pitched. Brad hitting the ball and running to his base. Brad is walking uh, walking home down the road. A van pulling up next to him. Barry calls out to him, commenting that he's ready for the majors. He's like, number 19. I was like, Cool, you sound extra rapey. Right. Let no, me get the terrible. fuck out of here. <laughs> he gives his thanks, Barry asking if he's heading home, offering him a ride. Brad denies that he's close and that he's good. And it's just like, damn, that made me this broke my heart, not because he was like getting 
fucking hit on by this creepy old dude. But the fact that his parents didn't even go with him to the baseball game. Right. Like this is a scene where it's like, where's the parents? Right. It's like he's a really good baseball player. You should be proud of him. You should be at his game, or right. at least one of you. Yeah. Like, yeah. Like, I get it. Like, situation. people work and shit and things like that. But this kid's like seven. Like, like maybe, maybe, maybe nine. Like, but, like, it's just like you're making this nine year old kid walk back home where the fucking children of the corn live and shit over in that cornfield. Like, yeah. what, what? what's happening here? It's a rough one to watch. Yeah. But goddamn this scene. Andy opens the door using her ability to lure, lure him in. And she looks fucking insane. She looks crazy. When she opens she like the door. Yeah. yeah she's there for the kill. But the thing that, that I want to point out here, when she opens the door, she's kind of snake-like. Yeah. Like the way she kind of slithers her hand forward. Like it's just so stiff. It's very sensitive. Like, yeah. Like it's just her fluidity is just, oh. It's so creepy, and like the way her hair is even split just makes it even that much more ominous because uh, she has like kind of that ombre thing going on there. He goes inside the van and they drive away uh, outside of an old factory at night. The true knot are prepping the area to tie up Brad. And trigger warning, everybody, if you have not seen Dr. Sleep and you just listen to this show, trigger warning here for um, pretty much child violence. Um, so. Just a quick little heads up there. If this is something that definitely triggers you, skip this whole part. Just, you know, your mental health is a lot more important than our listenership. I think David would have a hard time watching this scene, too. Oh, he for sure will. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I think this scene definitely would have made him want to call quits for sure. I don't think he would have called quits, but um, I think it definitely would have made him call quits. But I think he would have wanted to see, like, why did they do that? Right. Yeah. I think this is a point where it's like, you can skip this scene and we can just tell you what kind of happens for the most part. I don't know. This scene's kind of important. Like, because you, you're able to see how vicious they the have true to be, not are. Right. Because, like, the first thing with Violet, it made it seem like they just killed her. But the fact that, th- that we know that they literally make them live through their pain. Right. Like, I feel like this scene's actually very important. Um, to really show us how villainous the true not are. I agree with you, and that's why the director's cut is a little bit longer. Yeah, the director's cut's a lot. Just like oh, okay, <laughs> like, uh, we it, get it, we get it. it uh, Silent Nights here as well, and and just for context for everyone who hasn't seen the theatrical cut, this scene's not this long. Like in the theatrical cut, this scene is still brutal. Yeah, hundred percent. It's still brutal, but it, it's not so much on the pulling and things like that. But let's fucking just jump straight into the scene. He goes inside the van. They drive away. Um, oh, excuse me. I read that part already. Um, Barry pulls Brad out of the van, forcing him on the ground as the true knot tie him up. Brad screams, whimpers, and pleads to be let go. And the fact that this kid, this kid, and the way he cries, like, you know. Great acting. Cry, when someone cries and it's like coming from their throat when like they're coughing, like that is hard. Yeah. Like you're actually fucking crying. Like hard. Hard. Yes. Now, remember what I say, like I don't really like crying scenes because Tony Collette is like the pinnacle of crying scenes for this me. Is pretty on this par. is second. Yeah. It goes Tony Collette, then I think his name is 
I forgot his real name. Uh, Trumbly, right? Something. It's Trumbly. something Trumbly, yeah. Um, but I forgot his real name. But he oh, yeah, pl- Jacob Tremblay. Yeah, Jacob Tremblay. Thank you. Um, but he, it's it's Tony Collette, Jacob Tremblay, and then Florence Pugh. Like mm. that is like the lines for me when it comes to crying on screen. These are the ones that make me feel like I believe you. Yeah, you literally this is look authentic in pain. fear and crying and. Yes. Desperation, fear, yes. everything. Like all it, at once. It's one of those cries that makes you want to jump in the screen and save him. Yeah. Like it's it's absolutely horrendous. And me having a child, that scares the fucking shit out of me. <laughs> like I will never be having my kid walk home by themselves at age nine. I don't even want them to walk home at age fucking 30. People right. are crazy. <laughs> Rose approaches him, sh- uh, shushing him and waving the waving uh, the knife from, uh, waving for the knife from Crow. Um, and the way that she does this, like once again, she kind of comes in motherly, where she's just like, shh, 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 "Quiet now, quiet now." And he asks if they're going to hurt him. Rose simply replies. Yes, uh, claiming that the pain and fear purify stream. She unbutts his shirt, letting him know that you understand, stabbing him, sucking in his, his steam and feeding it to the others. He cries as she continues, the rest of them sucking in on his steam as well, Abra sensing and hearing the act while she struggles to sleep. Sitting up from Rose's laughter, Abra screaming and panting for them to stop. She pushes into Rose's brain, telling her to stop while calling her a monster. Rose is surprised, looking behind in the silo, but nothing there. She finishes off Brad, causing Abra to scream uncontrollably. He, her parents rushing in her room, trying to calm her. Dan... Dan's wall pounds and smashes, causing him to fall out of the bed. Uh, you know what would have been funny in this moment, though? If his landlord would have come up and be like, uh-uh, I told you no noise. Right. Get the fuck out. <laughs> he looks in the mirror while, while getting back up, quote-unquote, red rum chipped through the paint. His eyes wide, he looks at the wall. It flipped to the appropriate murder. He grabs the chalk, writing who? A few steps back, she returns with Baseball Boy. Back with Brad and, tru- and the True Knot, uh, him finally being put out of his misery while everyone else is in an orgasmic bliss. And this is where, like, you can see, like, Diesel Doug is, like, kissing and Grandpa Flick's kind of getting some, uh, his gray hair is now turning more to a blackish. Rose is all happy, childish, like, he's like, <laughs> like, right. like, everyone is in their element yeah they're all in a euphoric state absolutely now drug you know what's fucking nuts the crazy part about this to me is how quickly andy got involved with them now granted it's this is eight years later just just to make this perfectly clear so she's been been with them for a while but how just natural she is at it like she just like I, i i picture her not being I picture her first attempt of having to probably kill a child was probably rough until they fed her steam and she was just like, yeah, fuck it. This is what I mean. You know what? She, Michael Jordan was right. Fuck them kids. <laughs> she's always been that type of like huntress as well, hunting down her prey. Now yeah. it's just like she's in her element. 
She's good at what she does. Absolutely. They all get up. Rose upset that she wasn't able to get a few more minutes out of him. She What a fucking haunting line when she says that. She sucks the rest of his steam out, filtering it into the canister. The And the fact that they are so greedy and addicted is just absolutely insane because you see Crow trying to still a little bit while she's trying to put the steam. And she kind of looks at him. She sides at him like, what the fuck are you doing? Kind of thing. Right. Um, because like she is trying to put this in for their food later and when she kind of like she looks at him like stop don't yeah, do that again like, we need this like we need this like like i get it like he was delicious but right. stop abra is in bed sopping trying to explain what happened as her parents embrace her dan continues staring at the, at the wall analyzing it while rose and crow are are uh burying brad's body she comments that that they had a looker he stops digging asking about the size of her steam and i like that he how he doesn't believe her right away he's like bullshit like, no way. She mentions that it was huge, possibly in the East Coast, thinking that it to be insane that someone looked in from 1,500 miles away. Rose thinking that it was possibly further. He questions, uh, he continues his questions if it was a boy or a girl. She believes it was a girl, commenting that she hasn't felt raw power like that in a long time. Crow wants to look into it sooner than later before her parents freak out and send her to a, psychi- a psychiatrist, then putting her on, on pills. Rose explains that her steam is much stronger than that, comparing it to to saran wrap over a searchlight. What a fucking great concept that's such right a there. Great line. You visually see that. You're like, well, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. fantastic. Like, yes, it does nothing. She doesn't know she doesn't know where she is, but she knows uh she will come back and she will be ready. Cut to Dan getting ready to leave out of out of his room, but writes on the wall the camera moving toward the door. Dan leaving out and the camera turning back at, to Dan's message and of wishing her well and providing his name. Abra comes downstairs greeting her mom and telling her about her new friend. Dan. Uh, Lucy wonders if that's a new friend she met at school. Abra tells her no, that he doesn't live there, but he lives close, thinking Frazier. She asks Abra if she's okay, commenting about last night. Abra claims that she's okay uh, and apologizing for it. Lucy empathizes, understanding that her head is like a radio picking up weird stations. Once again, you get that radio line, mm-hmm. same as in The Shining. Abra comments that nothing weird like that anymore. She is uh, she's in school, taking off her headphones to evade uh, to evade other people's thoughts. Um, most kids thinking about school, sports, another kid not liking them, and a bully calling Abra a freak as she scowls at her. She puts she puts her headphones back in, looking at the missing children's board, scrolling down until she finds Bradley. Clicking on his profile, seeing his last known location, Abra um, heads back to her gorgeous-ass house. Her house is fucking beautiful. Like, are you yeah. kidding me? It's Like, yeah, Jesus it's house. Christ. Like, what? what your parents do? Like, that's what I'm saying and that's why what kind of birthday party you had I didn't have no birthday like that like Mike Flanagan <laughs> explains them as being middle class I'm just like what the fuck what where did they say they were from they're in New Hampshire New Hampshire it yeah. could be like middle class for that house. maybe I don't know not in the Bay Area definitely not in the Bay Area if you're considered middle class you're fucking poor you're poverty stricken yeah. Like, like, it's no way you're not surviving in with middle class. You need roommates. Like, it's just it doesn't work. Um, but the way that the house is here, I, w- I do want to point out that that house is also the biggest house on this fucking street. Like, look, look at the neighboring house. It is small <laughs> compared to this house. Like, what the fuck you mean? Just middle class? No way. 
But another thing to shout out here is that street address. As I mentioned before, like you see the street placard right in the front there, and it, it does say 1980 as of the year of The Shining coming out. She heads inside the house, her dad greeting her. Hey, Abadoo. Um, she grabs her juice. He asks her about school, and, uh, but instead she asks him about his book. I actually really love the name Abra. I think so that good. name is just so good. It fits the character very it well. It fits the character magical as hell. perfectly. It's funny because Stephen King didn't name that because of Abracadabra. He just liked the name Abra. And like, yeah, I was like, works. whatever, dude, yeah. whatever goes on in your head, I'll accept it. Um, he shares that it is good and that um, and is about to explain, but she cuts him off with a kiss and that she's going to do her homework in her room. She's uh, staring at Brad's picture, analyzing it, then closing her eyes, feeling uh, feeling everything that um, he felt. She springs back up, taking off her headphones to try again. And I love when the fucking heartbeats come, because mm-hmm. like when she springs back up, those, those heartbeats are like, it's just so perfect. So perfect. The Newton brothers knew what the fuck Ugh. they were doing. Able to see Barry in, in the road that they're driving on, the echoing laughter as, uh, is just, like, insane here as well. Like, Rose's laughter, like, leaving as as she's in this, canast- like, catatonic state. She leans back, thinking harder, her eyes flying open, being stark white, visualizing their caravan moving down the road to an uh, ethanol plant. She writes down the location, going over the events until they leave. Now, I know here that our Silent Night especially definitely love this moment because the bones cracking when the fucking the caravans moving through is like right like it's yeah. just ah, that fucking thing always sends chills down my Sound spine design. spot on god damn it oh i my love the god. editing style of that too because oh it's fucking it's genius like, like how fast it is through everything oh my god and it's just oh it looks so haunting it's so good I love it. These quick cuts. Oh, like, I love it. Styles so ridiculous. Like it, it's perfect. And what makes this so pleasant to see is when they're going in the circle to park. Right. I was like, wow, that's so satisfying. <laughs> like everything, it just like wraps up super quick. It's like yeah. you saw the entire event of what happened, but at the same time, you don't have to live through it again. Exactly. But it's like, yeah, cool. It's like a fast so forward dope. moment. So dope. She comes out of it shedding tears and, and um, seeing what she wrote down. Abra isn't done yet. She heads to the window, closing her eyes as she stares out. Pushing on the sill of the window, her eyes shifts um, to, uh, to where she is hanging, realizing that she loses her grip. This is beautiful. The sound design and the way this looks, and again, the cinematography is spot on. So good. Uh, to answer your question from earlier, the cinematographer is Michael Fimo- Fimognati. Yes. So he worked with Mike Flanagan on Oculus. Yep. He's done, um, what was it, Before I Wake. Is that Mike Flanagan too? Yes, that is Mike Flanagan uh, as well. Ouija, uh, Origin, Origin of, of Evil. Evil. He did Gerald's Game, Haunting of Hill House, Doctor Sleep, obviously. What's his and name again? Midnight Mass. Michael Fimlognati. How do you spell How do you spell that last part? I want to uh, look him up. F-I-M-O. F-I-M-O. G-N-A-R-I. A-R-I. All right, because there's a very interesting tidbit about this man that is probably the coolest tidbit ever. This is the fucking director, everyone, of To All the Boys I've Loved Before, the Netflix movie. Yes, it is. He's the director of all three. Yes, yes he is. And he's, one of the, and he's the cinematographer for all these horror films. 
this dude's a fucking beast. <laughs> uh, yeah, he's done something crazy. This dude's a fucking beast. Oh my god! And the most recent Midnight Mass. So of course, yeah, Which absolutely looks gorgeous. It, it, and it is gorgeous. Uh, falling down to a grocery store, her body is floating. When she looks down, she realizes that she is inside of Rose. Rose stops, looking behind her, then moves to a freezer door. She looks in, closing her eyes and opening them to see what Abra is seeing out of out of her window. While staring in the reflection, hints of Abra is staring back at her. This looks great. What the this, fuck? This is my favorite scene. What like, the fuck? Cinematic wise, this Dude. is like shot perfectly. Oh my god, perfectly acted perfectly uh the reflection shot is great that feels impossible um, the pov shot of her going into her body and she's like awesome. gliding down yeah. the aisle is gorgeous to look at it's so great the way she reaches behind her uh, yeah we'll talk about it right now yeah, yeah we'll definitely get there um rose with another iconic well hi there she reaches behind her head, her hand coming through Abra's. She gasps awake, shouting for her to get out of her head. Rose is pushed, the glass door breaking. Abra screams for her to get out of her head again, pushing Rose even further. The store clerk checks on her, about to pick up her hat. Rose stops her, claiming that she's fine. I love this part, though. I love when, the, when she tries to pick up the hat and help Rose out, and how Rose stops her, and she's just like, alright, fuck you then. I'm out. I don't get paid enough yeah. for this shit anyway. It's rude ass. I'm trying to help. Like She just like literally just walks away like, okay, whatever. God. You're a crazy like, person. I'm all right. <laughs> Cut to Dan passed out on the floor, his nose bleeding as well. Bill checks on him and helps him up. At, he asks what happened. Billy's sharing that um, he just collapsed, thinking that he uh, was having a stroke. He asks uh, who is Tony, mentioning that he kept asking for Tony's help. Dan apologizes, wiping the blood from his nose. Meanwhile, Rose comes back to, uh, to their campsite, heading straight to her trailer. Crow calls calls out to her, following her inside. She comments that they have a problem, a problem with the looker, claiming that she found her again. He doesn't understand how, but she doesn't care how. She just wants her. He asks... Uh, he asks if she knows. Uh, he asks if she knows who she is and where they are. Rose doesn't think that is important, explaining that she said uh, she was huge steam, but it's much larger than that. Sharing the events that happened at the store, he can't believe it. Her thinking that that to be the same, um, but it happened. He wonders if she is food or if they should turn her. She's offended by the question. Crow trying to explain, but she cuts him off that they don't they don't want anyone with that type of power in the knot. Rose has has thought um, to Rose has thought to not uh, turn or kill her. Use an analogy of a cow. You can butcher it and have meat for a month, or you can take care of it and have milk for years. Crow has reservations because they um, they've never done something like this quite before, and it could be dangerous if they keep it alive. Rose makes the point um, that Abra is great is the great white well, and she wants her. And I love how she like she's just not even trying to like deal with him like you're not fucking agreeing with me and you need to agree with me i can't do this shit without you kind of thing yeah like it's just like it, it, we all need to do this but that's the end of part one. Oh my fucking god now part two is definitely coming soon like i stated earlier everyone part two is available right now if you want to become a patron over on patreon.com slash goodnightlife at our $5 tier, you can have part two right now. If you don't want to do that, no problem. Part two will be out the following week. But this 
was Nightlight, a horror movie podcast. I was one of your hosts, Prince, also known as Head Knight. Alongside me, we have Freddy. Always keeping it spoopy. Always and forever. Also known as Nighty Night. Our efforts to get the show out is not enough. We need your help to spread us out to more ghoulish nights. Rating us with five stars is very helpful, but we would love for you to recommend this podcast to someone who would actually enjoy it. You can further support the show over on patreon.com slash goodnightlife. That's not what they would. Okay. My pleasure on Patreon. You've access to the show ad-free and it's early as Monday with the post-show. If you don't have any bucks to toss, don't worry. The episode is released every Friday on most podcast services around the world. And remember, everybody, don't forget your nightlight.